0: I'm Kate Daniels. If you've ever found yourself in a tough situation of knowing you're being directed wrongly, and even if you haven't, it may well happen. Ira Chaliff is here to shed some light on this challenge. Ira is founder and president of Executive Coaching and Consulting Associates, working primarily in the Washington, D.C. area, providing these services to companies and associations and agencies. He's been named one of the 100 Best Minds on Leadership by Leadership Excellence magazine. He teaches at Georgetown University and is an author who's joining us today with his latest book, Intelligent Disobedience, Doing Right When What You're Told to Do is Wrong. So let's meet him and learn. Ira Chaliff, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us this morning.
1: Good morning, Kate.
0: And more importantly, of course, is the fact that you do such incredible, important work in the world, and that you're here this morning to share some of the latest work that you've done, your new book, Intelligent Disobedience, which might at first sound to us like a juxtaposition of words that don't necessarily go together, but really it's critically important, and it's so important for us to understand this so that we'll see where probably it's going to be important for us in various places in our lives. Yes, absolutely, Kate. So to begin with, it is an interesting phrase, intelligent disobedience, and it comes with, as your whole book does, come with great stories. This comes from a very interesting story.
1: Yes, I was teaching a class to mid level managers, and in the middle of the class, we go into the subject of authority, how most of the time it makes sense, completely reasonable, to do what you're asked to do but sometimes it doesn't sometimes the person issuing the order has wrong information and if you just executed it exactly as they said actually you'd make a mess so a woman in the class raised her hand and said I have an example of that under my table (laughs) I said what what do you mean under your table well she had a, a dog under the table And she explained that this was a dog that was going to eventually become a guide dog for a person who is blind. And for the first part of this dog's life, it stayed with her, and she would teach it how to obey all the commands it needed to know. And then it would need to go to a higher-level trainer to teach it intelligent disobedience. And I said, what's that? I never heard the term. And she said, well, it's critical If you're trusting someone with somebody's life, that if the dog gets an order which would be harmful to obey, like forward, when a quiet car is coming around the corner, it must not obey. It must know how to distinguish between when to obey and when not to obey. And that's called intelligent disobedience. And the light bulb went off for me. I thought, if we could teach dogs to differentiate between... When is it appropriate to obey? When is it not uh, safe to obey? How do we do that with, with people and with children? And that began my investigation.
0: And so that continues throughout the book, using that metaphor of the guide dog. And while it is different, there are just so many ways that we can use that. We can reflect on that in circumstances in our life and question ourselves. And I think that's a, a really good technique to have in hand.
1: Yes, absolutely. And it starts at a a very young age. What I discovered in doing my research for this book that it's really important right at the family dinner table to start building that foundation of how to help children understand when to obey and when not to obey. You know, Kate, we actually do this unconsciously in a few very narrow ways. For example, what do we tell our children if somebody says, um, you know, come here, little boy or little girl, get in the car with me? Stranger, we, we say, you don't listen to them, you run to the nearest door and ring the bell and, and get help. Well, that's disobeying. Now, the question is, how do we start to teach that a little bit more broadly? I hate to say this, but in, unfortunately we've learned that we need to teach children at a pretty young age how to say no if somebody is inappropriately touching them or trying to touch them. So we do recognize that you can start this differentiation early on, but we don't give it the attention that I found it needs through the research I did in the book.
0: That's the thing, that we are conditioned then from a very young age, so in the home, and then of course when we go to school, for all those years in education, we're taught generally to just really obey. Follow what the teacher says.
1: Yes. And here's this great paradox that teaching ideally should bring out the ability in a child to think for himself or herself. So they can say, what I'm being asked, what I'm being told, is that true, is that correct, or isn't it? And yet what happens is the teacher, who is the authority figure in the classroom, needs to be able create an environment in which that kind of questioning can happen without being afraid of losing their own control over the class. There's really an art to this, Kate. And I haven't found that we teach our teachers well enough how to create this environment.
0: No, because actually what happens with going through teacher training is that there's classroom management and it's more on discipline, really, isn't it, than thinking about how to conduct a really engaging environment.
1: Yes, um, and we can all empathize with teachers. We know their job is very hard and we know that losing control of a classroom is not something we want to see happen. Unfortunately, in reaction to that, the training on how to maintain, establish, maintain classroom discipline is so severe and thorough and detailed that we lose the, the bigger picture that we're trying to train people not for obedience in an authoritarian culture, but to raise them as citizens in a vibrant democracy. And one of the things I learned uh, as I studied this, was that the mark of what's supposed to be successful classroom management obedience is that the student internalizes the authority's voice so fully that the authority doesn't even have to be in the classroom for the student to be obeying. Now, yeah, that's efficient, but is that what we really want, that for um, people to grow up with this internal voice that says, I I must always obey, I must always obey, whether or not obeying is the right thing to do.
0: Now, along the lines of education and how teachers really will step out and hold their ground on what is the right thing to do, you share another really good story about a teacher in Florida. I wonder if you would share that with us.
1: Yes, that was an interesting story that I think a lot of your listeners may find particularly interesting. We know how much uh, debate there is over standardized testing, Um, and really the debate is over excessive standardized testing. I don't think anyone completely rejects the idea that it's useful to have some measurement of student progress, but what's happened is we have created um, such a culture with so many Penalties uh, that are attendant to not getting high grades on the standardized tests that schools pay a price and whole uh, school systems pay a price. So we get, uh, you know, on the downside, we get what happened, for example, in Atlanta a few weeks ago, where about ten administrators and teachers received jail sentences because. They were basically helping students cheat to make sure that their tests went high Uh were, were satisfactory to keep school funding. That's terrible. And it, Atlanta is not the only place where that happened. Well, the, an exception to this, which you're pointing out, was in Gainesville, Florida, where a teacher of a second-grade student found that the amount of testing was excessive. Second grade was excessive. And particularly one test Uh, which was called FAIR, and I forget exactly what it stands for, uh, was particularly onerous. And she searched her conscience and decided that the right thing to do, her highest uh, responsibility, was to create a learning environment in which children love to learn and set the tone for the rest of their education. So she sent out a message to all the parents in her class saying that she had made the decision to not implement this one test, not th- not all testing, but this one test, and she wanted them to know that this may cost her her job, but that was her sense of what was right to do. Well, the parents and the community rallied around her, and the very happy ending of this story is that uh, the state changed that requirement for second graders.
0: And. So these are the kinds of stories that you share with us, and I think it gives us an opportunity to think about it and see how it might apply in our life, in what's going on around us, and find a a, a way that it might be important and we can apply it.
1: Yes. What I'm hoping is uh, at two levels. There's the foundational level and then there's the workplace level. I'm hoping that at the foundational level, enough parents start to recognize the importance of this topic, where, you know, many parents are part of reading groups, they read an interesting book each month, discuss it, and see how to make it apply in their lives. I'm hoping that intelligent disobedience becomes one of those points of discussion, because I think that the real change starts at home, and starts the way Uh, the way in which parents uh, talk to their children, uh, engage them, give them reasons for when they uh, tell them to do something instead of just saying, you know, because I said so. And then it can percolate up to preschool and and the K-12 through environment. So that's what I'm hoping happens at the foundational level. Meanwhile, <laughs> millions and tens of millions of us are employed in every sector of the economy, and it's important in every sector to know when to obey and when not to obey. The, uh, of course, where you know the stakes are very high, uh, such as in uh, airline pilots or hospital room surgeries, those professions have figured this out, and they actually put their their uh, personnel through. A little bit of training, because that's all it takes to recognize when to speak up, when to dissent, when to say uh, something's wrong. Let's let's fix it now, regardless if they're in command or not. But there are many other sectors of the of the uh, economy where we need to do a better job of this.
0: Absolutely, and that there again, you cite some. Important stories, and again, I'd like you to share the story uh, that you do in the book about WorldCom. I think that that one bears for us to to remember because uh, it really shows how we can how a person might know in their gut what is the right thing to do, but might still follow along with what authority tells them to do.
1: Kate, you're really raising the central question. We almost always know in our gut when something's wrong. But then all these other calculations come in place, fear of losing our job and these kinds of things. So, or, or just, you know, thinking, well, they're the authority, they know better, I should obey. The WorldCom story was uh, that I focus on in the book was of a mid-level accountant named Betty Vincent, and she was uh, asked by her supervisor to fudge the numbers uh for just one month they hadn't quite made their quota it was going to hurt their share price and this was just a small adjustment they were asking her to do for one month well she knew this was wrong and she went home and she even wrote out a letter of resignation um, but she then tore it up and said well it's just for this month that's the danger rationalizing and then the next month came around and they said mm, just one more month and this went on For three or four or five months until an internal auditor detected what was happening, confronted Betty Vincent with this, who immediately confessed because she she knew that it was wrong. And the sad part of the story is then she uh, got a jail sentence of almost a couple of years and uh, about 30 mid-level accountants were indicted. So even though the short-term risks it seems to be, oh, if I say no, I'll lose my job. What's the long-term risk? You can, you know, lose your license or, or or your freedom. So we all need to be careful when we when we know something's wrong. Be very careful about uh, not rationalizing it. Instead, take the stand early because that's when you can still change things.
0: Indeed, and to play it out, uh, to hypothesize about it if she had taken a stand, maybe, maybe they would have listened. Again, they may not have, and she may have needed to resign. But ultimately, you know, if she could see the future, resignation was going to be a better solution than ending up in prison.
1: You're absolutely right. And I have stories that show exactly that. Someone just told me a story the other day of when they were working for a nonprofit organization and an organization uh, that did work that really, it was work uh, that the nonprofit did not stand for, and its own people would not be happy to hear that funding was coming from that source. But it was so attractive to the executive director uh, that she said, okay, let's take the funding. Well, this young staffer uh, pushed back and said, I really can't do that. I can't write the copy for that. I'm too uncomfortable with it. Um, I think, uh, you know, I don't think we should do this. And the executive director said, all right, I'll see you tomorrow. And, you know, the young woman went home and she thought, well, tomorrow I'm going to lose my job. The organization was under financial stress. She came in the next day. The executive director called her into her office. She thought, this is it. I'm going to be fired. And she said, instead the executive director said thank you i really thought about it i really understand your point that it would harm the organization and we won't take that in funding so that's a, that's that's a happy ending as you say it doesn't always have a happy ending but at least you walk away with your integrity from the situation
0: yes and i think that that is what we really need to hold close to our heart is that integrity because in losing that really what's going to be left
1: Exactly um you know you still have to face yourself every day and you um ultimately in the world that is the primary um resource we have our own integrity our reputation for being honest fair trustworthy. So even if, and and I don't belittle that losing a job can be very traumatic, but there are worse things to happen. Uh, And uh, I think that's what we have to keep in mind when we decide to take the risk, to take a principled stand. And hopefully, more often than not, that it'll work out okay.
0: And certainly some of that, well, probably a lot of that is from foundational upbringing, from what happens in our home and how we're raised and, you know, having that reinforced through the educational system. But that fundamental part is so important. And yet, as you state, too, in the book, we need to practice that there need to be opportunities for us in the workplace, desirably, right, to have ways to practice how to really say no or to question it. Maybe it's not going to be an outright no, but how to question in a way that will have others listen.
1: Yes. And again, those industries that have done this, it doesn't take a huge amount of time. It's just sends a signal to people that it's okay. Um, and not only is it okay, it's expected of you to speak up if you see something wrong and to have a little practice. So, for example, you know, we know that there were far too many hospital errors, and to counteract that, a new protocol has been adopted in almost all hospitals uh, pre-surgery and post-surgery. So pre-surgery now, every single member of the team in the surgery room has to verbally assent to that it is okay to begin the operation they can't just you know nod their head they have to say yes it's okay everyone is accountable so if you know the lowest person in that room says "Well, have we checked if we have the right size knee replacement part and they find they don't have it they've avoided uh, opening a patient up unnecessarily and closing them up, you know, with the risk of infection, et cetera. Same thing when they, before the surgeon can end the operation. Uh, everyone has to agree verbally. And so if, if a nurse says, I counted 13 sponges put in, we've only removed 12. The surgeon must look for that 13 sponge. So that's a simple example. That probably took a few hours of training for that staff, but now it gets reinforced each time there's a surgery. I'd like to see, or I think it's important that we see something like that in all sectors where there's a potential for, even in small ways, of doing something uh, that will have health effects, uh, safety effects, et cetera.
0: And of course, in your life's work, you conduct workshops where on leadership where you work with people that really do then have that opportunity to practice it and really immerse themselves in that kind of experience
1: yes uh, and it's interesting the point you're raising there because it can seem from a leader's point of view who's ever the you know the authority figure, that it would be an annoyance to have people uh, disobeying or questioning. In fact, it really protects that executive. Some executives have confided in me that the thing that most worries them is, will people do exactly what they say when they know it isn't right? Uh, and and that's un- unfortunately, oftentimes people will do that. So it's up to the uh, formal leaders to create an an atmosphere that will make it much easier for people to speak up when they think something may not be right. But whether or not the formal leader creates that atmosphere well or not, each of us are still accountable for doing the right thing at the right time.
0: Indeed. And you uh, have another story when you know, and thinking of the workshops where you did have someone who was retired military come to you and share an experience of having his superior officer question him and, and teach him how to question and really listen for the intent of what was being asked of him.
1: I think that was a wonderful example of the point we were just making here. Yes. So this, uh, at the time he was a lieutenant lieutenant, and he would report every morning to the captain. This was the army. And the captain uh, was a new captain. And he gave the captain gave the lieutenant an order. The lieutenant saluted and, went, and turned around to go and do it. And the captain said, hold on a minute. Uh, did what I tell you make sense? And the lieutenant snapped his tune and said, yes, sir. <laughs> and the captain said, did it really make sense? And the lieutenant said, well, sir, not fully because of this and this and that. And the captain said, you need to understand something. I can't have you leaving here executing an order that you know isn't right. You need to be able to tell me it's not right. And the lieutenant said, yes, sir. And the captain said, yeah, but we're going to practice that. And he actually put him, through, the lieutenant through an exercise where and I, I don't necessarily recommend this, but I think it was effective, where uh, the lieutenant had to say, uh, sir, that's BS, sir. <laughs> and it was very hard for him to do that in a military environment, but the captain insisted until the lieutenant could do it. And then a few weeks later, uh, there was a real test of it. The uh, colonel had come into the captain's office The colonel's nephew had misappropriated a military vehicle, and the colonel was trying to sweep that under the rug, and the captain explained this to the lieutenant, and the lieutenant, per his training, said, Sir, that's BS, sir. (laughs) Well, the colonel went a little bit apoplectic when he heard this, because, of course, he didn't understand that they had already uh, practiced this. And the captain said, It's okay, sir, I'll take care of it. And he put his arm around the lieutenant. Uh, walked him to the door and said, you did great, but get out of here before the colonel kills you. So, you know, that's an extreme example, but it's not a, it, it's a pretty good example. Of what does it take to break down the training that says we should always obey authority, even if what they're telling us to do isn't right?
0: Precisely. And so, th- we've just touched on a few, but there are just multi-stories here that really keep underscoring this concept. And I think ways that we'll identify with and can remember should we find ourselves, and of course we're going to find ourselves in circumstances where we'll need to make a a decision like that. May not be as huge, but it it will be one that requires integrity.
1: It does. And, you know, it starts, uh, first job first job you can be asked to be do something that um, you feel is not right and you know you're fresh out of high school or college and you don't want to lose your job but you have to learn right from the beginning how to question if what you're being asked to do is not right because you know that's what will set the pattern for you for the rest of your life so Thinking about it, learning a few techniques, that can make all the difference.
0: Exactly. So the book, Intelligent Disobedience, Doing Right When What You're Told to Do Is Wrong, is quite new, but certainly available from all of our favorite book sources, correct?
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: And, of course, also by looking at your website. So let's mention that, shall we, Ira?
1: Yes. um, Intelligent disobedience. Dot net, and I have to stress the dot net, and what you'll find there is you'll find uh, some resources to help understand the subject better, uh, some interesting videos, some articles, uh, and other things that you can use to start, a, I hope, a conversation with your family, uh, with your book reading group, uh, with your PTA, uh, perhaps in your workplace. So, uh, and, and if there are any questions emerge from that, people can contact me through the website.
0: Which is a wonderful, generous offer. So, intelligent disobedience coming from the whole concept of guide dogs. And I, I really appreciate the metaphor because the guide dog is responsible for the life of the individual that they are leading, someone who's not able to take care of themselves. So he, you use the example of the dog, if he steps off the curb when there is a quiet car going by, splat.
1: Yes, let, let, me, make a, let me just make a, a clarifying point there, Kate. Uh, people who are blind actually, of course, have a lot of capacity to take care of themselves, and they are actually the lead in the team between the, the the human and the dog. However, the dog is trained, so when the lead in this the case the human um, fails to see something because of their particular literal blind spot, or in the you know for the rest of us sometimes our metaphorical blind spot, it is trained to take over the lead for that moment and find uh, first of all refuse to obey the command, and then find a safe way to accomplish what's needed, and then turn the lead back to the human. And again, I think it's a wonderful metaphor for the kind of environment we want to create uh, at at all ages and places of of our education and work.
0: Indeed. And then again, you illustrate that. I think we have time to share this uh, one story about the nurse that follows, is given a, a directive by a doctor. She's just a young nurse with an experienced doctor, and she knows that she does not want to follow that order.
1: Yeah, and this was quite a while ago. I think these days, again, nurses re- receive a bit of training in this, uh, but uh, back then they didn't. Uh, she was given an order to administer a a uh, drug to a cardiac patient that she had been taught was contraindicated in that situation she was afraid it could worsen or even kill the patient and she said something to the doctor which was difficult for her to do since she was new in nursing and he was a doctor and and under pressure in an emergency room he said just do what i said and Imagine yourself in that situation, life or death, either way if you're wrong. And she had the presence of mind to hook up the IV bag, put in the uh, drug that he had uh, prescribed, called him over, said, Doctor, it's ready to go. My training says that this isn't right, so I can't turn the valve. If you're confident this is the right thing to do, please turn the valve yourself. And that was enough to stop him, get him to rethink, uh, prescribe a safer medication, and the patient recovered. That's the kind of presence we need at the moment when we're suddenly given an order which we believe is dangerous.
0: Yes. So again, just such great stories that help us to connect and understand and really then think about how we can respond. So Ira Chaliff, you are such a master at storytelling and at writing, of course, because this book, Intelligent Disobedience, is a must-have. And of course, we encourage everyone to get their own copy, right?
1: Uh, From your mouth to their ears.
0: (laughs) Well, it's been wonderful. Thank you for such uh, great input and uh, really inspiring us. I truly appreciate your time and your work.
1: Thank you so much, Kate.